0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Dylan Penningroth.
1: I'm a professor of law and history here at Berkeley, and I'm chair of the Jefferson Memorial Lectures Committee. Um, Just a little bit of background about these lectures. They were established way back in 1944 through a bequest from Elizabeth Bonestell and her husband Cutler L. Bonestell of San Francisco. And the Bonestells cared deeply about history, and they hoped that these lectures would encourage students, faculty, scholars, and area residents to study the legacy of Thomas Jefferson and to explore values inherent to American democracy. And past lecturers who've included Annette Gordon-Reed, Senator Alan Simpson, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Archibald Cox, and most recently George Packer have delivered Jefferson lectures on early American history, about Jefferson himself, and on American institutions and policies in politics, economics, education, and law. Now, before I go any further, I have to say uh, that any event like this is a group effort, as any of you who have organized one will know. And the committee, which includes Mark Brilliant, Paul Pearson, Wendy Silver, Karen Tani, Christopher Tomlins, and I, uh, join me in thanking Whitney Mello, Savala Trabinski, and especially Ellen Gobler, who you just saw up here, for their deft and tactful handling of all the logistics. So we're pleased, on behalf of the Graduate Division, to present this year's speaker in the Jefferson Memorial Lecture Series, David Cole. So in July 2016, David Cole was named National Legal Director of the American Civil Liberties Union, our country's largest and oldest civil liberties organization. So in July 2016, you may remember the New York Times gave Hillary Clinton a 74% chance of becoming president. It looked like things were going to be well, maybe not all right, but at least I. Right? We all know what happened next. And thanks to Robert Mueller, we're slowly finding out how it happened. Now, David Cole has been at the forefront of those who are fighting the consequences of what happened. Since that fateful November, this already busy man has become even busier. As National Legal Director, he oversees about 1,400 civil liberties lawsuits and manages over set three, excuse me, 300 staff attorneys at ACL headquarters in New York and affiliate offices in all 50 states, Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. There has never been a better time to become what the first George Bush once scorned, a card-carrying member of the ACLU. Now, Cole was law clerk to Judge Arlen Adams of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. He was a staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and he taught constitutional law and criminal justice at Georgetown as the Honorable George J. Mitchell Professor in Law and Public Policy. He's argued a number of major civil liberties cases, including Texas versus Johnson, which struck down state laws banning flag desecration. National Endowment for the Arts versus Findlay, which contested content restrictions on NEA funding. And Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, which challenged the legality of a provision in the USA Patriot Act barring, quote, material support, end quote, to foreign terrorist organizations. In December 2017, he argued Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, in which the rights of free exercise or free expression and the right in public accommodations to to protection against bias based on sexual orientation come together in conflict, or what the legal historian Rebecca J. Scott has called in another context, public rights or the equal dignity of citizens in the public sphere. These are the stakes. Cole has written or edited 10 books. He's legal affairs correspondent for The Nation and a regular commentator on national public radio. He's received two honorary degrees and many awards for his civil liberties and human rights work, including, in 2013, the first Norman Dorson Presidential Prize from the ACLU, awarded to an academic for lifetime commitment to civil liberties. For his Jefferson lecture, Cole asks, quote, What does the first year of fighting for liberty tell us about constitutional law and the future of civil liberties and civil rights in the United States? Please join me in welcoming David Cole to Berkeley.
2: Thank you so much for that um, uh, very lovely uh, introduction. Uh, I, I um, when I get an introduction like that, I, I'm often uh, often calls to mind what Justice Brennan uh, used to say when he got uh, similar um, uh, over the top um, in- introductions. He, he he'd say, you know, I wish my parents had been here to hear it. Uh, my father would have been proud, and my mother would have believed it. Uh, so, uh, and, and I am uh, delighted to be giving the Thomas Jefferson uh, lecture. I was earlier today um, uh, interviewed for a, a video um, a presentation uh, and the, um, uh, here at Berkeley, and the person who uh, was doing the taping referred to me as Mr. Jefferson, so I thought that was... Uh, <laughs> That was interesting um, uh, uh, but i will, i 'll I'll talk mostly about the last year and, and, and more about what uh, Donald Trump can teach us about civil liberties than uh, what uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, can teach us um, my, my My principal um, uh, message here is that while this is a dark time, and there 's no question that it is a dark time in our uh, in our country for a variety of reasons and for a variety of, um, of segments of our uh, population, it is also a, a, a time of opportunity. Uh, and I think a time of, uh, of hope. Uh, and secondly, uh, that we will determine uh, how this time is ultimately viewed in history uh, and if we respond by exercising our civil liberties, uh, we can, I think, uh, tr- transform what is a very dark time into essentially a catalyst for a renewed uh, progressive uh, movement. So um, it's easy, I think, to convince people that these are dark times, and I'm sure you've heard many talks and many uh, 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 you know, uh, guests on talk shows talk about how dark it is, but I really want to um, uh, look at the other side of the coin, and that is um, uh, where opportunity lies. But first, in terms of you know how things have changed, uh, Dylan uh, mentioned that I was hired in July uh, 2016, uh, and uh, and and I was hired. Um, I was recruited for the job by the executive director of the ACLU, Anthony Romero, who came down to Washington, D.C., where I um, was teaching at Georgetown, and he said, David, you know, I've got an offer you can't refuse. You have been uh, uh, teaching constitutional law, practicing constitutional law for 30-some years under a conservative majority Supreme Court. Just think what it would be like to run the ACLU's legal docket and especially its Supreme Court work under a liberal majority Supreme Court. And of course, the the New York Times may have had it at 74% that Hillary Clinton would win. I had it at 100% that Hillary Clinton would win. And I think most of the people I knew uh, had it at 100%. And So she would, of course, name uh, the successor to Justice Scalia. Uh, and we would have, for the first time in four decades, a liberal majority Supreme Court. So of course I signed on the bottom line. I I went to law school back in the 1980s and my uh, professors were all uh, people who had come up uh, and become uh, lawyers and law professors uh, in the civil rights movement uh, uh, under the uh, watchful eye of the Warren Court, the Supreme Court, under the tenure of Earl Warren, the most progressive Supreme Court in the history of this country, and that 's the vision of constitutional law that they taught me and Then I graduated and went out and practiced under a conservative majority Supreme Court for three plus decades. So I thought this is a great uh, a great opportunity. I signed on the bottom line i didn 't put in a conditional what if because there was no what if, right? Uh, and I immediately, I didn't start immediately because I was finishing up my teaching at Georgetown, but I you know, immediately tasked the ACLU lawyers to write memos on how we could advance uh, constitutional law under this liberal Supreme Court that we were uh, sure to be, uh, to be operating under. And those are really interesting memos. They're now in the wastebasket. Um, Uh, And and obviously, uh, uh, everything changed uh, on November 8th. I still hadn't started to work for the ACLU, but the the, the executive director decided to introduce me to the national staff at a national staff meeting, which he uh, scheduled for November 9th. The, mor- the morning after the election, you can imagine that staff meeting was not about introducing me. Uh, it was about uh, uh, what had uh, uh, what had just uh, uh, what had just transpired, and and people were, uh, you know, many of the staff were, you know, in shock, as I'm sure, you know, many of your students were, many of the people in this room probably were in shock because uh, no one ever thought this could uh, happen, and everyone was very concerned about what it might. Um, what it might portend. Um, and it did change in many ways, in fundamental ways, the way that we operate. But in other ways, no. I mean, we, we've been around since 1920. Uh, we've sued Republican presidents. We've sued Democratic presidents. We sued the Bushes. We sued Clinton. We sued Obama. So in that respect, you know, we will sue Trump. We have sued Trump. That's not that much of a change. But uh, we went from the possibility of working on offense and having an inside game with, with a Justice Department that shared uh, some of our most basic uh, uh, beliefs and values to uh, having to play a largely defensive game and one in which we, um, we have to rely uh, largely on an outside game uh, rather than an, uh, than an inside game. But in many ways, it's times like this when organizations like ours are so critical and so important. And one of the reasons that I feel buoyed and hopeful in this time is the response of the citizenry to the election of Donald Trump. So Donald Trump walks like an authoritarian, he talks like an authoritarian, but he doesn't rule like an authoritarian. And the reason he doesn't rule like an authoritarian, at least thus far, is because he can't. Because there has been significant resistance from citizens, from courts, uh, from civil society in a a variety of ways. And those checks uh, are are absolutely critical. So, you know, there are many examples of um, uh, of the response to President Trump's uh, election Here, this is our first uh, r- response. Uh, we'll see you in court. And for a long time, this was, the, this was what you saw, <laughs> Donald Trump's visage on the front page of the ACLU website. Uh, and we, 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 two days after that, uh, that staff, con- the staff uh, uh, meeting on November 9th, we published in the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post uh, this letter to President-elect uh, Trump. For nearly 100 years, the ACLU has stood as the nation's premier defender of freedom and justice for all. Uh, as you assume the nation's highest office, we must ask you now, as President-elect, to reconsider and change course on certain campaign promises you have made. Uh, and we then went through the campaign promises he, he had made, including the, uh, the Muslim ban, uh, and said, if you carry these promises through, uh, we'll see you in court. Uh, And, and uh, that's what, um, uh, that's what we have, uh, we have done. We have sued the president over uh, the, the Muslim ban uh, on many occasions, and I'll come back to that uh, in a moment. We've sued him over uh, the, um, uh, the, the attempts to deport uh, uh, dreamers, uh, people who have, uh, have the protection of the uh, of, of DACA, uh, those are the young uh, people who were brought here uh, illegally by their parents and are, uh, but at no fault of their own, and are undocumented. We sued him over his Voter Integrity uh, Commission, which was essentially designed to try to s- create the basis for uh, suppressing uh, the vote. Um, uh, we sued him over uh, his uh, his administration's policy of obstructing access to young undocumented women who are in federal custody uh, here and seek an abortion. Uh, and, and his, uh, his choice to, p- to head up the Office of Refugee Resettlement, a man named Scott Lloyd, who has no uh, history or, pra- or experience in immigration, but is an ardent um, uh, anti-choice uh, uh, person, uh, has taken it upon himself to essentially bar the door when young women who are detained because they're, they've been, ca- they've been you know, captured as undocumented here, uh, they learn that they're pregnant, they choose to uh, exercise their constitutional right to obtain an abortion, uh, he has time and again essentially blocked the door and said, I'm not going to facilitate your obtaining an abortion. I'm not going to facilitate. How is he facilitating the woman obtaining an abortion? By opening the gate so that she can leave the facility that she's detained in, in order to go to a clinic where she can get medical treatment. And so we've sued him uh, to challenge that uh, uh, direct obstruction of uh, the, the, the right to choose, Uh, to terminate a pregnancy. We've sued him over the transgender military ban, which he introduced via Twitter uh, without any consultation with the Joint Chiefs of Staff who had determined that there was no need to bar transgender individuals from serving uh, in the military. We've sued him over a policy that would allow employers to deny contraceptive coverage Uh, to their employees through their health insurance if they object to uh, their female employees getting access uh, to contraceptive coverage, putting the employer's uh, moral or religious beliefs over uh, the rights of uh, women to uh, to full uh, medical uh, uh, coverage. So we've sued him time and again. We've had, we have five cases in the Supreme Court this term, and in all five, Trump is on the other side. Uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the Justice Department, for the first time in its history, is supporting a constitutional exemption to a non-discrimination law. The Justice Department enforces non-discrimination law. That's one of the central responsibilities of the Justice Department. And so uh, for them to support a constitutional exemption to non-discrimination law uh, is remarkable and indeed uh, unprecedented. Um, We're we're suing, uh, we're on the other side in a case involving Ohio's practice of purging voters from the voter rolls if they fail to vote. And for 20 years, the Justice Department under Republican as well as Democratic administrations, supported the, the, the view that we are articulating in that case that the motor voter law prohibits that practice. And in fact, the Justice Department filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, in our case supporting our side uh, in the Court of Appeals. Uh, but when... Uh, we prevailed, and when Ohio took the case to the Supreme Court and Donald Trump was elected and Jeff Sessions was appointed, they reversed their position, a 20-year consistent position on the statute, uh, flipped sides in the case and are uh, opposing us. Uh, we are, uh, we're suing over uh, your privacy rights with respect to the, cell, the, the, the data on your cell phone and the Trump administration is arguing it should be able to get the data on your cell phone as to where you, uh, where you are at any given uh, time without a warrant, uh, without um, uh, going to a judge. And of course, we uh, sued him over the uh, travel ban. Uh, that is uh, also uh, before the Supreme Court. Now for the second time this term, and will be argued uh, uh, in April. So, um, so we told him we, we, we'll see you in court and we have indeed seen him in court and by and large the courts have stood up to the president. So the courts have enjoined the Muslim ban repeatedly. Three different versions of the Muslim ban have been enjoined repeatedly. Uh, the courts enjoined the transgender military ban. The courts uh, barred the uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement from uh, uh, keeping women from their right to, uh, uh, achieve, uh, to uh, obtain abortion. Uh, the courts have, uh, have uh, rescinded uh, President Trump's rescission of DACA, uh, the protection for the DREAMers. The, uh, the courts have enjoined the policy that will allow employers to deny contraceptive coverage uh, to their employees. Uh, if they object. Um, uh, so, uh, so by and large, the courts have stood up to the present. And I think that's, you know, um, uh, as it should be. It's not as it always is. And, of course, we have not yet heard from the Supreme Court on any of these questions. And that's where the rubber ultimately meets the road. But in a time of Uh, unified government, that is the same party controlling the presidency, both houses of Congress, uh, and indeed right now, the Supreme Court, Um, the courts nonetheless continue to play an important role in checking abuse. And why is that? Well, one, the politics of the courts Lags behind the politics of the moment because just judges are appointed by a particular party at a particular time, but then they serve for life, and so the 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 court's uh, um, uh, outlook changes much more slowly than the than Congress or the president. Number one. Number two. Courts are uh, uh, they're, they're they're. their self-definition is to be independent checks applying law to politics. And while there is obviously reason to be skeptical that they always do that and that it's possible to separate law from politics, it is critical to their legitimacy as institutional actors to to hold true to that ideal. And so courts do uh, in many instances hold uh, true to that ideal. I think in this instance, it's also the case that courts tend to be establishment um, focused. You don't get to be a judge by being a rebel, right? You, you, so courts are are, are establishment oriented. Whether, they're, whether a judge is appointed by a, a Democrat or a Republican, they have an interest in the status quo. The law has an interest in preserving the status quo and making sure that people, uh, you know, can, can sort of plan their lives, go about their lives without getting too disrupted. And, uh, and President Trump uh, doesn't seem to care all that much about the status quo. Uh, and he is uh, quite, in, in, in virtually every respect, a challenge to the status quo. Uh, and in his attitudes towards constitutional norms, constitutional rights, and indeed the courts themselves, Uh, he is not only threatening the rights of individuals, but threatening the institutional role of courts. Uh, So when the first nationwide um, uh, uh, ban on the travel ban was issued by the judge uh, in in Washington State, uh, Trump tweeted uh, and referred to the judge as a so-called judge Right, uh, so when the president is um, uh, shows utter disregard for basic uh, underpinnings and and foundations of our constitutional system, it is not surprising that courts will um, be part of the resistance. And indeed, they have. They have stood up um, for the rule of law, uh, for uh, rights. At least thus far, against uh, the uh, against the president. Um, but uh, courts are uh, by no means enough, uh, and it's not these this handful of decisions that really um, makes me hopeful. Uh, you know, th- it, it is it is uh, much more. The other forms of checks and balances that operate at a time when one party controls the executive, the Congress, the Supreme Court, and, while we're at it, two-thirds of the state uh, of state governments. And that is not formal separation of powers, uh, but the informal checks and balances uh, of civil society. The press, the academy, uh, uh, and and, uh, the religious organizations, and uh, civil society nonprofit organizations like the ACLU uh, or Planned Parenthood. At times like this, those are um, critical Uh, potential sites of resistance. Indeed, that's why when authoritarians take power and exercise authoritarian control, don't just walk and talk like an authoritarian, but rule like an authoritarian, as we've seen in Hungary, in Poland, these are their targets, right? They target the courts, but they also target the universities. They target the press. They target civil society because they, and they often target religion because these are all places where citizens come together and act collectively in ways that can hold the government accountable and can um, resist abuses of authority. This is why uh, the First Amendment uh, is so important. It's, It's not just... Uh, the First Amendment doesn't just protect a right to express yourself, to discover who you are, um, uh, to, to, to be an autonomous human being. It protects that value, to be sure. But it also is a critical, plays a critical structural role in uh, checking abuse. And it does that by protecting precisely these forms of civil society checks and balances, a free press, free exercise of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of association, and freedom of assembly. This is how the people hold a government accountable. And what I find most uh, encouraging about the, 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 the Trump era is how energized that civil society sector uh, is. Uh, and we saw it, you know, the, the, the day after the president was uh, inaugurated with the Women's March. Just a remarkable nationwide, worldwide uprising of people who came together uh, to stand up against what uh, this newly inaugurated president uh, uh, stood for. And we've seen it since then in the airport demonstrations, in the DACA demonstrations, in the uh, the town halls to protest the efforts to to repeal the Affordable Care Act, in the um, the election, special elections in Alabama and Virginia, in which people who care about civil rights and civil liberties came out in force uh, and elected uh, people who uh, uh, who representatives who stood for those values. In places where that was unthinkable uh, before Donald Trump was elected. We've seen it at the ACLU. I mean, many many people say to me, you know, well, you started in January, David. You know, how's it going? And I say, well, not bad. Um, before I started working at the ACLU, we had four hundred thousand members. Today we have one point seven five million members pretty good, right? Now, that's the difference, for those of you who are students, that's the difference between correlation and causation. Uh, I don't think I can take credit for uh, much of that uh, increase in our uh, membership. My dad did join, so I get that one. But, uh, but otherwise, Donald Trump gets credit, right? Uh, but really, it's the American people who get credit. They have recognized that in a time like this, organizations like ours, and it's not just ours, Planned Parenthood has seen un, un, uh, unprecedented uh, support, the Legal Defense Fund, uh, lots of uh, newfound support, the press, New York Times subscriptions, Washington Post subscriptions have never been higher. People are responding to the threat of Trump in the way that they uh, know best, which is by engaging, by engaging collectively through the institutions of civil society uh, that can play a, a role in curtailing these uh, these sorts of abuses. Uh, so it's been uh, kind of a, a, a wild ride at the uh, at the ACLU. I mean, one, one of one of my. Um, the, the, the legal director of the Chicago, of the Illinois ACLU said to me, you know, shortly after I had begun, he said, you know, David, it's not fair. You started to become, you became the legal director of the ACLU at a time when it's popular to be the director of the, to be with the ACLU, right? And he's from the Illinois ACLU, the one that defended the rights of the Nazis to march in Skokie, so he should know. Uh, But we have, you know, in in addition to our newfound members, we've had thousands of people coming forward to uh, volunteer—lawyers, non-lawyers, tech people, uh, artists. Uh, We've had people like Tom Hanks and Tina Fey and Usher and all kinds of other artists, way too cool for me to ever have heard of them, uh, do fundraisers for uh, the for the ACLU. The um, one day I walked into my office. And uh, there were all these big boxes in the hallway outside of my office, big black boxes, and all these cameras, and, and, uh, and what was it? It was, it was Vogue magazine who had come to the office of the ACLU to do a feature on women of the ACLU. I can guarantee you that in the 100 years that the ACLU has been around, there has never been a feature on women of the ACLU. Uh, much less in Vogue magazine, and those big black boxes were um, filled with uh, really fancy clothes and shoes uh, that they dressed the women in, <laughs> because we, because you know, women of the ACLU don't dress sufficiently for Vogue magazine, so Vogue dressed them. Um, uh, but, but really, uh, you know, uh, quite, uh, uh, quite something, and you know, it, 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 it's, um, it is that. Uh, support uh, that I think you know supports all of us as we do the work, um, uh, as the as we do the work that we uh, that we do. So um, let me talk a little bit about um, how this sort of to give an example, of sort sort of how this um, uh, works. Um, so. Let's, um, let's, you know, think back to the Muslim ban. The Muslim ban was President Trump's first major initiative. And that was not a coincidence. Uh, he chose, for his first major initiative, it was issued on January 26th, six days after he took office, um, targeting foreign nationals, targeting Muslim foreign nationals in the name of protecting Americans' national security. Now, historically, that kind of measure does pretty well politically uh, in the United States and in other countries as well. That is, if the government says to the people, hey, you're under threat, we're here to protect you, And we're not gonna take away your rights to do this. We're gonna take away the rights of somebody else. And the somebody else are foreigners and not not just foreigners, but Muslim foreigners. In the aftermath of 9-11, President Bush uh, and the um, uh, Justice Department rounded up uh, over 5,000 foreign nationals Arab and Muslim foreign nationals and detained them on suspicion that they might be involved with 9-11. None of them turned out to be involved with 9-11. But it wasn't, it didn't cause an outcry. Uh, And the message was, we're targeting them, not you, and we're seeking to protect you. The same thing happened in 1920 when there were a series of terrorist bombings Uh, This is as close as I get to Thomas Jefferson. 1920, there were a series of terrorist bombings, and the response to those terrorist bombings was uh, the Palmer Raids, uh, in which the government went out and rounded up thousands of foreign nationals, none of whom had anything to do uh, with the terrorist bombings. And again, not uh, a a huge outcry from the American people. Uh, But this time was very different. This time, there was uh, resistance from day one. The, the order was issued on a Friday. That night, we filed the first case challenging uh, the, um, the ban uh, on behalf of two uh, young uh, uh, Iraqi men who had been Uh, given visas to come here after um, uh, working with our military in Iraq. They were stopped at at JFK airport because they were from Iraq. And the Muslim ban covered anyone who was coming from Iraq, even those who had visas, who had been vetted, who had been cleared, and who had been given visas because they had sacrificed for us. And so we sued that night with the help of, uh, uh, of of a clinic, of law students at at, at Yale Law School. And the next day, Saturday, a remarkable thing happened. Tens of thousands of Americans rushed out to airports to demonstrate. And this was remarkable for at least two reasons. One, this was not the way we historically respond when the government targets them to protect us. People were going out to airports, not to demonstrate for their own rights, but for the rights of others, for the rights of foreign nationals, for the rights of Muslims. But the second thing that makes it remarkable is where these demonstrations took place. They were at airports. Now, I don't know about you, but the last place I wanna be, unless I have to go somewhere, is an airport, right? It's a soul-crushing environment. And yet, Tens of thousands of Americans got off their couches and went out to demonstrate, to protest on behalf of the other um, and against the Trump travel ban. They went to airports like JFK and Boston Logan Airport and SFO, where there's plenty of international uh, flights coming in and people were getting stopped. But they also went out to wholly domestic airports where there were no international travelers whatsoever. People were just, people were, were primed and ready uh, to, uh, uh, to stand up and to act, to engage. Um, and it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just people, uh, ordinary people. It was also all manner of civil society. So ultimately the leading, pr- presidents of all the leading universities signed a letter uh, opposing the Trump ban. The leading uh, science organizations all signed a petition opposing the Trump ban. The, um, the, 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 the CEOs of the largest and most successful corporations in Silicon Valley submitted an amicus brief uh, opposing uh, the Trump travel ban. And even uh, national security officials uh, came together to oppose the Trump travel ban that weekend... Uh, Michael Hayden, um, wh- who was a, um, uh, the head of the NSA and the CIA under George W. Bush, he's a, uh, he's a defender uh, of the CIA's interrogation slash torture program. I've debated him on several occasions on that. And yet that weekend he tweeted, how about that, ACLU and I in same corner. Uh, Dick Cheney said this was un-American. Dick Cheney, Uh, and Berkeley's own John Yoo, uh, who came to prominence by writing the memos as a lawyer in the Justice Department that authorized the use of torture by President Bush. Uh, He wrote uh, an op-ed for the New York Times saying, this time executive power has gone too far. So there was a remarkable uh, 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 voicing, of resistance from people, from ordinary citizens uh, at, at airports, uh, to the to the to the leading uh, universities, scientific organizations, businesses, and uh, and, and former government officials. Um, we we had a that, that was that was all on that weekend. So that our case, um, we filed that that Friday night, uh, was scheduled for an emergency hearing on that Saturday night. Um, and uh, it went out on Twitter, as these things do, that there was a hearing on the Muslim ban on Saturday night uh, at the Brooklyn Federal Courthouse. And this was the scene, I'm gonna see if this works, um, this was the scene outside of the uh, courthouse.
3: A-C-L-U, we are here, we stand with you.
2: Over a thousand people surrounded the courthouse on a Saturday night. Like, you know, how often do you think on a Saturday night, hey, what do you want to do, it's a Saturday night. Let's go down to the courthouse. Uh, They came and surrounded the courthouse. Uh, It was a cold night, January 27th. It was almost as cold as it is here today. Um, uh, And they were chanting, uh, ACLU, uh, we we are here, we stand with you, again. Never in the history of the ACLU has that happened. And indeed, uh, shortly thereafter, the ACLU lawyers came, walked out of the courthouse to announce to the crowd that the judge had issued the first injunction against the, um, uh, the travel ban. So, uh, and, and these things are not, uh, and, and then, uh, then the, the court in Washington State issued the nationwide uh, ban, uh, and then those, ca- those cases went up on appeal, and the courts of appeals uh, affirmed those injunctions, and Trump uh, initially... Uh, made all kinds of noises about appealing, but ultimately decided to put out a second version of the ban, and that too was struck down, and he took that up to the Supreme Court, but then just as the court was to hear argument in that case, he put out a third version of the ban, uh, and that one uh, has been challenged uh, in in the courts as well, and has been struck down by district courts, by the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit here, and the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, Virginia, uh, and will be heard uh, in the uh, in the Supreme Court, so this is a, this is an example, I think, of this the combination of civil society activism and courts playing a, a critically effective role in checking the president's abuses. And if you look at uh, at, at history, um, what you often see is that dark times can lead us to positive results if, if people respond to those dark times by engaging, by resisting, uh, and by acting collectively through civil society to advance uh, a, a brighter uh, future. So the first, take the First Amendment. The First Amendment today is pretty well settled. Uh, there is a very strong presumption that the government cannot suppress your speech, even if you're advocating crime, unless uh, your speech is, direct, is, is intended and likely to produce imminent criminal conduct. A very high bar. It was established in a case involving the KKK, Brandenburg versus Ohio, 1960s. Similarly, It is established that you have a right to associate even with organizations that engage in criminal activity as long as you don't specifically intend to further the illegal ends of the organization. That too was established in the 1960s in a series of Communist Party cases. Uh, The argument of the government had been the Communist Party engages in uh, illegal activity, it seeks to overthrow the United States by force and violence, that's a crime. And therefore, anyone who's associated with the Communist Party uh, can be denied their job, can be uh, uh, locked up, uh, punished, deported, etc. Um, but ultimately, the court ruled no. You have a right to join the Communist Party, you have a right to support the Communist Party as long as you don't specifically intend to further its illegal ends. So those are tremendously um, significant protections of our First Amendment freedoms. But they came out, where do they come from? They came from a history of government abuse of First Amendment rights. They came from decades of the McCarthy era and the Red Scare uh, and the uh, the targeting of anti-war uh, uh, activists during World War One and the targeting of uh, anarchists uh, in the uh, in the nineteen in the teens and the nineteen twenties, and it was out of the experience of abuse that the court ultimately adopted a, a, a powerfully protective view of the First Amendment. And it, the court didn't do it on its own; it was through the work of labor unions, of the Communist Party, of organizations that represented the Communist Party, the National Lawyers Guild, and the National Emergency Civil Liberties Committee, of organizations like the ACLU, to advance a broader protection, broader understanding of First Amendment protections. In my my book, Engines of Liberty, which I wrote uh, the year before I joined the ACLU, uh, I looked at a couple other examples. Um, one is, um, the, uh, how did the right to bear arms go from being dismissed as a fraud in 1990 by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Warren Burger, a conservative Republican appointee, who said that the notion that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms is one of the greatest frauds perpetrated on the American people uh, in my lifetime? That was 1990. How did it go from being dismissed as a fraud by a conservative Supreme Court justice to being recognized as a constitutional right just less than two decades later in 2008? And what the the, the answer is, as you I'm sure know, the National Rifle Association. It was the work of the NRA. A group of citizens committed to a particular vision of constitutional law, one that had been dismissed by the Supreme Court as fraudulent, one that had been rejected by the federal courts for a hundred years, it was their work, their political work, that that created the the possibility that this right could be recognized. And what, what sparked their engagement in this quest. The NRA has been around for a long time, but the NRA has not been a political organization for a long time. The NRA started out, was founded after the uh, Civil War by Union generals who were abashed at how bad shots the Union army was. And so they created the NRA to like, train people to be better marksmen. And it was a marksmanship and hunting organization for you know, over a hundred years. Then, in the 60s, there was the, 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 the uprisings and the violence and the assassinations, and it led, 1968, to the most aggressive federal gun control legislation in American history, the Gun Control Act of 1968. And it was only in response to that, considered a disaster by the NRA and its members, that they created a political arm and undertook a political campaign which was designed to instantiate and establish an individual right to bear arms. And they did it incrementally. They did it in the states. They did it through legislation. They did it through electoral politics. They did it by arguing cases in state court. Uh, and, they, and, and ultimately, they were able to put, get all 50 states on board as protecting an individual right to bear arms by the time the Supreme Court took up the question in 2008. So under state law or state constitutions, the states had already recognized an individual right to bear arms. They got Congress to support the notion of an individual right to bear arms in several pieces of legislation. They got the executive branch to support an individual right to bear arms when George Bush was elected with their support and John Ashcroft was made the Attorney General, a longtime NRA member, and they immediately wrote the Attorney General and said, Dear John, what do you think about the Justice Department's longtime view that the Second Amendment doesn't protect an individual right to bear arms? And he wrote back immediately and said, I think it's crazy. And he reversed. Uh, a position that the Justice Department had taken for decades and, 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 uh, and got a hundred page memo written by the Office of Legal Counsel on why there is an individual right to bear arms. And so when the case came up to the Supreme Court in 2008, the NRA had already succeeded in getting the states, the Congress, and the executive branch to endorse this concept. Not that hard then to get the Supreme Court to do it. But what sparked them to do it was from their standpoint, a, a loss, a big loss in the Gun Control Act. So they, the NRA um, understands the democratic underpinnings of constitutional rights. Another story I tell in that book is the story of the marriage equality folks. How did marriage equality go from unthinkable, which is what it was in 25 years ago, to inevitable, which is what it was in 2015 when the Supreme Court decided uh, that there indeed is constitutional right to marriage equality. Uh, And uh, the, the answer is the same. The NRA. No, the answer is the same. It is civil society organizations who took a vision that was rejected in the law and worked in a variety of forums through people to advance a different conception that made it possible to prevail on the claim. So in 1972, a gay couple argued that they had a right to be married. And they relied on the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution and the Due Process Clause of the Constitution. And the Supreme Court thought so little of the argument that they dismissed it with a single sentence and said doesn't even raise a serious question. That was 1972. 2015, the Court recognized a constitutional right to marry on the basis of what? Equal Protection and the Due Process Clause. The exact same arguments. So the arguments didn't change. The court, the court changed. Right, the court in 2015 was different from the court in 1972. But if anything, the court in 2015 was more conservative than the court in 1972. That was the tail end of the of the uh, of the Warren Court. Uh, 2015 was, uh, you know, the the, the Roberts Court. Uh, and yet, uh, the court in 2015 recognized the right. So the law, the legal arguments didn't change. The court, if anything, changed to become more conservative, so what explains the change? What explains the change is the world changed. And how did the world change? The world changed because groups like Lambda Legal Defense Fund, Freedom to Marry, uh, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, the ACLU uh, Gay and Lesbian Rights Project worked collectively, incrementally, uh, patiently over 30 years to establish uh, uh, steps on the road to recognizing marriage equality. And they didn't go for it in one fell swoop. They did it incrementally. They started in the states. They got progressive cities to recognize domestic partnerships for gay couples. They got progressive uh, counties to pass anti-discrimination laws that that included sexual orientation. They got some courts in some progressive uh, states to uh, recognize gay families in, in, under family law in, in their adoption rules, and the like, and only then did they make an argument that there 's a right to marriage and They made it first in Vermont in a state court on state constitutional grounds uh, and uh, uh, and, and won civil unions there, and then took it to Massachusetts and made the same, same arguments in Massachusetts on state constitutional grounds, not federal constitutional grounds, because if they made a federal constitutional argument, it could go to the Supreme Court where they knew they would lose. And so they kept it to the states where the, the state Supreme Court is the final, uh, is the final uh, arbiter. But there, too, what, what, what sort of launched this whole movement uh, for gay rights was a series of losses. Uh, The murder, the the homophobic murder of Matthew Shepard, the AIDS crisis, and the failure and refusal of the government to do enough to respond uh, to a crisis that was uh, specifically uh, affecting, at that time anyway, the gay uh, community. Uh, Along the way, Proposition 8, right, which people in this room... Uh, Remember Proposition 8, uh, when the Supreme Court of California recognized marriage equality, it was put on the ballot. And in 2008, in the most liberal state in the country, maybe except for Vermont, California, in a year when Barack Obama was elected, the first black president was elected, marriage equality lost, lost in a popular referendum in California. It was a devastating loss. But it, it, it sparked a renewed commitment to engage in acti- act- activism to advance the notion of marriage equality. And it caused the, the groups to reconsider how they were arguing for marriage equality and shifting from a rights framework uh, in their arguments to a love and commitment framework which was much, turned out to be much more effective at bringing Persuadable people, people on the on the fence, uh, to their side. So, so dark times uh, can often inspire people to come together and act in ways that advance the ball from their perspective. Whether it's ACLU and First Amendment rights, whether it's the NRA and the right to bear arms, or uh, or or gay rights groups and uh, marriage equality. So, um, so in 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 a, in a very real sense, how this period will ultimately be seen is up to us. It is possible that this is the first step on the road to authoritarianism in the United States. Certainly, Donald Trump exhibits all the features of authoritarian leaders, but it is also possible that we will look back on this period 10 years from now as a dark time that nonetheless inspired and catalyzed the citizenry to step up and speak out in favor of visions of civil rights and civil liberties that reflect this country uh, at uh, at its best. Uh, And I think we've seen many signs of that. The most recent sign of that, I think, is the high school students who've responded to the mass shooting in Florida. How? By engaging in citizen activism. And it's quite possible that they will shift the debate on gun rights and gun control uh, in, a, in, a, in a direction that favors a gun control. But the very willingness of them to get out there and speak, this is not the first shooting, mass shooting at a high school, um, the very willingness of them to take this action up in their own hands, in their own voices, I think is a reflection of what they have seen since Donald Trump was elected in the women's march, in the airport demonstrations, in the DACA demonstrations, uh, in, the, uh, in the town halls around the ACA, uh, in the, in the uh, special elections, and now uh, uh, in the uh, effort uh, to advance uh, gun control. So one of the things we've done uh, at the ACLU is to recognize that the, 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 the fight here is not simply a legal fight in the courts. It is a fight of all of us. And those 1.75 million people who have come to join us, they don't want, just want that card you know, in the mail or, or emailed to them. They don't just want to get uh, you know, an inordinate number of uh, email action alerts in their inbox. They actually wanna take action. So one of the things we did was to create something called uh, people power which has, an, uh, I think, an unfortunate sort of uh, uh, 60s uh, kind of a uh, name to it. It seems a little old-fashioned to me. But, um, but we created People Power. And what People Power is, is a platform to encourage and facilitate local activism by citizens who care about civil liberties and civil rights in a coordinated fashion, but a decentralized and local Um, uh, through decentralized and local action. Uh, And so the first campaign, which was um, launched uh, with a video, an hour-long video presentation done, shot live in in Miami, Florida, uh, was about sanctuary cities. It was about getting citizens together to encourage their towns and cities to adopt sanctuary policies. And over a million people watched the video, People watched it in house parties across this country, in every state, multiple uh, house parties. And then we gave them suggestions for how to go out and uh, seek to encourage their local governments to uh, respect the rights of immigrants. Uh, the, same, the same thing, um, uh, we, the, the, the most recent campaign is a campaign about voting rights. Let the people vote. And we have, again, we launched it through a video, a live videotape presentation that people were invited to uh, watch in house parties across this country, and they did. And we have state-specific campaigns in all 50 states that people can take up and, and act upon. Uh, and that's, I think, a tremendous, uh, tremendously important part. It is grassroots mobilization in defense of Civil liberties. Why is the NRA so powerful? It is so powerful because it has not 1.75 million members, but 5 million members. And it has 15 million others who think they're members, but don't pay their dues. And when I interviewed the NRA, Uh, officials about this, they said, well, we'd love to have their dues, but what we really want is for them to identify as NRA members, because that means we have 20 million people that we can reach out to to engage when we think gun rights are under attack. And so they have 20 million people, one right. We have 1.75 million people, the whole rest of the Bill of Rights, so we have still got some uh, a ways to go, but but what they have uh, uh, what they've shown is that the the strongest um, uh, support of civil rights and civil liberties is not the court, um, but it is the people. And indeed, a- even after the Supreme Court recognized an individual right to bear arms in uh, in the um, D.C. versus Heller case in 2008, it is not the Second Amendment that stops. That protects gun rights and stops gun control legislation. It is the NRA. Because the NRA is able to stop laws from getting enacted that would clearly be constitutional, uh, and it is able to get laws enacted that protect gun rights that clearly would not be required. The court in, in the Heller case didn't say you can't regulate guns, it said guns are subject to reasonable regulation, and they gave all kinds of examples. So it's the political check of the NRA, not the constitutional check of the courts that is the ultimate protector of that right. And what may happen now is uh, that the high school students uh, may give uh, impetus to a similar local, you know, uh, state-by-state campaign to push back against the NRA, something that we really haven't had uh, in this country Um, uh, uh, yet. So people power is one of the ways that we've responded uh, to Trump. Another way we've responded is through social media. Uh, And, and, you know, here, Donald Trump has shown us the power of social media, right? He can uh, speak directly to the American people through his Twitter account, for better or for worse. But it's not just Donald Trump that can do that. Um, I, in, in my second week on the job, I, I, I sat in on a, on a meeting of our comms department, our communications department. And it was amazing. It was, like, it was like being in a newsroom. There were 30 people and they'd get up and say, well, this is what this is the video we created this week and this is the issue that we're pushing and we got this interview and that interview and uh, this many hits and here's, here's what happened on the piece of legislation that was, uh, that was at issue in this state. Uh, and, it was, it was uh, remarkable. And I said, I said to them, you know, when I started out as a civil rights lawyer uh, with the Center for Constitutional Rights, a scrappier, smaller version of the ACLU, back in the 1980s, we had a comms department. It was one guy. Uh, he was the PR guy. And what would he do? He would file a press release when we filed a lawsuit. He would file a press release when we had a hearing. He would file a press release when we won a lawsuit. And sometimes he'd file a press release even when we lost a lawsuit, right? But, and what was he doing with those press releases? Trying to get the media, and especially the New York Times, to cover our cases. Well, we still do that. We still try to get the New York Times to cover our cases, and they do. Um, but we can speak to the people directly. We have uh, 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 you know, incredible reach now through Facebook and, and, and Twitter and Instagram, that we can speak to the people directly. And in that comms meeting of the, of the uh, you know, 30 or so causes that we were, that we were advancing in that, in that prior week through the various campaigns, maybe 15% of them were cases that we'd actually filed. But 85% of them were, were issues we cared about and that we were fighting on, but we were fighting through public education, through mobilizing people, not through uh, relying on courts. Uh, and that has led to um, uh, uh, some really, I think, uh, interesting work by the uh, by the ACLU. Here's, some, here's one campaign we did. We, we took out uh, ad space, this is in Times Square in New York, for an ad, and the text there, for those of you who can read Arabic, you'll, you'll know, so I don't need to tell you, for, the, for those of you who can't read Arabic, the text is the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. and. We it, the, it was a billboard that that um, changed, and it went from English to Spanish to Arabic, just the text of the First Amendment. We also th- oh this is the women of the ACLU dressed in their Vogue uh, 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 costumes, uh, excellent. Uh, those blue ribbons. This is uh, Lin Manuel Miranda and uh, Emma Stone uh, wearing. ACLU blue ribbons uh, at the Academy Awards. Again, never before in the history of, uh, of our organization have we had anything like this kind of support, but it was our communications department that reached out to people and came up with this idea of let's, let's give a shout out to the work of the ACLU um, from voices that people pay attention to, whether they are you know likely uh, collaborators or not. This is a little uh, video uh, that announces a uh, education campaign we did about the um, about the Muslim ban one year after uh, it had been put in place. So um, – and and then if you go to that site, what we did was collect the stories of people whose lives had been disrupted, uh, like the woman who tells that story, um, by the Muslim ban. So other than the fact that we use impact as a verb, which I cannot stand, a fantastic um, uh, effort to get – to reach people by telling stories about the real-life impacts of these abuses uh, and to encourage the, this continuing involvement. So let me, um, uh, let me, um, I, I'm, I'm coming to a close. I want to I show you this video, which is one we made uh, at the end of the year to mark the, the, the first year of the Trump campaign. And I think it says, uh, you know, more eloquently than I just have uh, what I've been talking about. And then I'll have a Two more words and we'll be, And uh, I'd love to hear your questions.
4: We are here doing some hard work. Our big march, January 21st, 2017. We have to make our voices heard.
0: Any woman's right is a human right. It's very important that we stand together and march in solidarity. This
4: protest has really grown in size. Hundreds of people out here protesting. No way, no way. Yemeni bodega owners rallying and praying in response to the president's immigration ban. Hundreds have closed their stores this afternoon.
0: We're joining up to write a bunch of postcards, figuring out what we can do, what resources we have as a community. In Tempe, special kind of bake sale this weekend. This bake sale is
4: more about community, sharing culture, and helping refugees build a life in a new place. Hundreds of Colorado students walk out of school. Their message, we stand with dreamers.
5: From coast to coast, the players putting on an unprecedented display of solidarity for their league. I have
4: never talked about my case in public. This is probably the first time I've ever really talked about it. It happened to me too. Me too. Me
5: too. Speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. A
4: new day is on the horizon.
2: So, you know, I think that just, just seeing those images, and, and for some reason, you only we got the music, but not the, the actual voices. Um, it, it just it reminds us of how many incredible movements uh, have been launched since Donald Trump was elected, um, uh, from the from immigrants uh, protections to the Women's March to the Me Too uh, moment. Uh, uh, to the, uh, the, the successful struggle to uh, oppose the repeal of, uh, of Obamacare, uh, even though Trump had control of both houses of, uh, of Congress, uh, to the most recent uh, efforts of uh, high school students to respond to, um, to, to mass shootings. It's, it's really pretty remarkable. And to me, that is where our salvation lies. And so I'll close with a quote uh, from Learned Hand, Learned at Hand as it was a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Um, he is often said to be the greatest federal judge not to have served on the Supreme Court. Um, now that my wife is a federal judge, I can't agree with that. Um, but uh, he was a pretty good judge. Uh, and he, he made a speech in 1942 to and f- a crowd of 150,000 newly naturalized citizens. And this was a a, a remarkable naturalization ceremony. It was held in Central Park, 150,000 immigrants who had taken the oath to become citizens. And they asked Learned Hand to address uh, these new new members of our polity and he he, he decided to speak about um, liberty. Uh, And he said um, that uh, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it lies there, uh, or no, when it dies there, no court, no constitution, no law can save it. But when it lies there, it needs no court, no constitution, no law uh, to save it. And like many great quotes, it's an overstatement. We need courts, we need a constitution, we need laws. They instantiate our ideals and hold us to them in moments when we uh, fall short. But it recognizes a critical truth, uh, and that is uh, that the ultimate protector of liberty is us. And so to me, what is most hopeful about this moment is that us, we, have stood up like never before in my uh, lifetime uh, as a citizen, uh, to come together in defense of basic civil liberties and civil rights. And so I'm, uh, I feel privileged to be part of that battle, um, but I am buoyed by the fact that so many of our fellow citizens are part of that battle, and I hope uh, all of you Uh, will be part of that battle going forward. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for that wonderful set of remarks. Um, If you're willing, uh, could we take a few questions? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to put this microphone here. Anyone who wants to ask a question, please come to the microphone. They can form a little line. I only make two requests of you. First... Please keep your questions short. And second, please ask a question. Okay.
2: (laughs) And if you do that, I'll keep my answers short and and give an answer.
6: Um, uh, Thanks for your presentation. Um, I'm actually one of the uh, defendants from the 2016 Republican National Convention flag burning case, along with Joey Johnson from Texas V. Johnson's, a, a good friend of mine. Yep, um, my
2: former client.
6: So I'm, I'm very familiar both with the authoritarian attacks um, that have been happening, but also our, our cases were dropped um, and all the ways in which the courts have beaten back. Um, and i beaten back these various attacks on lots of different fronts, and I appreciate the way that you talked about the combination of civil society activism along with um, You know the the legal battles in the courts. Um, My question is about the actual dynamic that's been happening. Where yes, things have been beaten back on various fronts, but the Trump regime keeps pushing forward on many other fronts, including finding other ways. You know, besides just the Muslim ban, whether it's extreme vetting or whether it's. you know, yep. different other restrictions and ways to keep people from those countries. And on top of that, there's the question of you know uh, using incidents in the same way you talked about in the the Pomerades. They use those terrorist bombings. There's, I mean, look at what Bush used 9/11 to do. Can you imagine if there's some incident like that now with this guy in the White House? So uh, my question is, I I, I I guess I agree with. Um, the, the, the hope that you have, but I also think we have to confront how dangerous the situation is. And rather than just fighting against each separate attack on people, don't, don't we need to actually mobilize all those people that were in the airports, that were at the Women's March, don't we need to mobilize them to drive the regime from power altogether?
2: So, so um, you know, I, I think... Um yeah, there are many. Uh, there are many attacks. Uh, the Trump administration is, um, ha- has has gone after many uh, many targets, and uh, so it's a challenge. I mean, we, you know, we have uh, because we're a multi-issue organization. We're, we've been able to respond to many of them, um, but there are plenty that we can't respond to. The environmental attacks. The you know the environmental groups are uh, are, are responding to. There are, there are a whole host of. Uh, organizations that are fighting back in various ways, and I think it takes the work of all of us um, to do it. In terms of, you know, getting the regime out of power, that's what elections are for. Um, there will be midterms. Uh, uh, I, th- I think, you know, um, the I'm optimistic about the midterms, about the possibility of people who believe in civil rights and civil liberties getting, uh, getting elected, uh, and that will um, uh, put a further constraint on the uh, president. I'm optimistic about 2020. Um, uh, when we get there. You know, Donald Trump uh, was elected with uh, uh, losing the popular vote. He got three million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton. He won because of the peculiarity of our electoral college. He came into office with the lowest approval rating of any president in history, uh, and his approval rating has fallen since then. Um, so uh, th- in a democracy, that that is a significant um, hindrance to getting uh, done what you want to get done. Most of what he's gotten done is through unilateral executive action. Um, and the thing about unilateral executive action is that there's quite a quite room, quite a bit of room for unilateral executive action, but it can be reversed um, by the uh, by the next president if um, we we elect a president who cares about civil rights. Uh, and civil liberties. So I think um, the response is is through the democratic process. And uh, you know, as as to the um, the risk of a of a terrorist incident, absolutely, that's a concern. But look, you know, George Bush had more more um, more going for him than President Trump. He uh, did not. Uh, uh, when, when 9/11 happened, uh, he had a Congress on his side. He had the court on his side. In fact, it was the court that put him into office through Bush versus Gore. It was his court. Um, uh, And he had uh, a history of deference to the president in times of crisis. And he had 90% approval ratings. Um, And yet by the time, and he acted in, uh, uh, he over responded to the attacks on 9-11 and authorized torture and disappearances and uh, uh, Guantanamo and the like. But by the time he left office, He had released over 500 people from Guantanamo. He had closed down the secret prisons uh, uh, in Eastern Europe. He had suspended the torture program. He had stopped extraordinary rendition where we abducted people and sent them to other countries to be tortured. And he did that in response to civil society uh, uh, advocacy that made it too costly for him to continue those efforts, in particular because foreign countries uh, were unwilling to work with him uh, because he was so tainted by uh, these, uh, these acts. So, um, uh, so if we could push back against George Bush, who had 90% approval ratings, surely we can push back against Donald Trump, who doesn't, can't even command a majority. Yeah.
4: Hello. Uh, thank you for your speech. I'm just a local activist grassroots person. I happen to do a lot of work for Organizing for Action, the former Obama uh, group, which is uh, very issues-based. And the thing that strikes me the most is, yes, I thought the day he was elected that it would incite enough people to fight back. But the thing is that he's the great creator of chaos, and he has siloed off all the people into all the various issues So we have, you know, he's great at just throwing a new issue out there every day on Twitter. Um, You know, if he can't get health care through, he's talking about taking a knee at the NFL game. So my question to you is, given the fact that his strategy seems to be to go after grassroots by dividing and conquering and creating a thousand issues, so I'm fighting for DACA today, and tomorrow, you know, you're fighting for um, the Muslim ban, whatever it is, what can the ACLU do, because there's strength in numbers, we're Warriors fans. What can the ACLU contribute to bringing strength in numbers, bringing us together? Yeah. Because united we stand and divided we fall, and that's one of his key strategies.
2: So that's a great question, um, and, 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 uh, and I, I think you know, it's the key question. Uh, and I don't think at the end of the day, it's the ACLU that will do that. We are trying to do that. Uh, People power is, is, is especially trying to do that. We work in coalitions across the board to, uh, to try to uh, foster um, uh, uh, progressive movements and, uh, and, and strengthen the, uh, the opposition to, um, uh, to, to these abuses. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I think it's gotta be the Democratic Party. Um, you know that that w- which is a big tent across the board organization. It's not focused. I mean, we're we're broad based for civil liberties and civil rights, but we don't deal with the environment. We don't deal with, you know, regulation of business, particularly. We don't uh, deal with uh, um, the distribution of wealth, a huge issue in this country, right? So it can't be our organization. And there is no uh, the only organization that really is across the board that it has the capacity to be a uh, to stand against the, the president um, is uh, the Democratic Party, I think, um, and, uh, you know, I'm not um, overly impressed by the Democratic Party's uh, uh, work thus far in, in, in standing up, but I think at the, you know, when, when it comes to the midterms, um, you're going to see all of this energy, you know, the energy that's been directed in, in, in immigrants' rights and towards the Me Too moment and, uh, and, and, and around gun control, all of that energy is going to come together in, in support of candidates who care about civil liberties and civil rights. They might be Democrat, they might be Republican, but it'll be uh, candidates who stand against what Donald Trump stands for, and that's how we come together. But I agree, we, we, need, we, need, um, uh, we need messages that that unite us. And you know, I think civil rights and civil liberties is a message that can unite us because it's ultimately predicated on a set of rights that are owed to all of us by virtue of our being human. They're not the rights of progressives. They're not the rights of liberals. They're the rights of all of us. Uh, and so that is, and, and one of the ways that we define ourselves as Americans is by virtue of the values and rights that are reflected in our Constitution, and the Bill of Rights is one set of those. So I think it can be a unifying force, but it can't be the only unifying force. Thanks.
0: First, thank you for your wonderful talk. Uh, You mentioned in uh, your discussion of the First Amendment the Brandenburg test, which defines the outer bounds of what is protected free speech. And the fact that Brandenburg was a Ku Klux Klan leader, I'm going to go to a meeting, I'm not a member of the NLG, but right after this about the new FBI designation called Black Identity Extremists. I wonder if you could speak to the uh, the notion that uh, the ACLU should prioritize and continue to defend the most really vicious and virulent and offensive hate speech as long as it is within the bounds of the Brandenburg test so that a deterioration of the Brandenburg test, if it were to happen, could not be used against black activists who could then be called black identity extremists and accused of fomenting violence and all the rest. So I think that there's it's a lively discussion, um, but uh, I wonder if you could speak to that discussion and uh, where the ACLU stands, and in particular, um, well, that's on that. Thank you.
2: So, so yeah, thank you for that question. We, you know, the, 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 ACLU has long, again, we, we, we defend the bill of rights. Uh, we defend the rights that are, that are reflected in the bill of rights, which are ultimately human rights. They are, they are owed to everybody. Uh, and we will defend them on behalf of anybody. Um, so, uh, so we defend the right to speak of civil rights activists. But we also defend the right to speak of white supremacists, uh, and I think you know if you are committed to a principled defense of the First Amendment, it can't be any other way. The First Amendment is not—if the First Amendment was just about protecting those with whom you agree—it wouldn't be a human right, right? It would be a right of 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 a particular subset of the uh, of the country. Uh, so. Um, So I think a principled stand in defense of the First Amendment requires that one recognize that the right extends not only to the people with whom you agree, but the people with whom you disagree. And in a democracy, um, it is ultimately, the First Amendment is ultimately a protection of the minority. Right? It is a protection of those who don't have power in democracy, who don't have a majority vote. And it's a critically important protection because it's what, it's what gives those of us who are not in power, those of us who are unhappy with the status quo, a way to voice our concern and to act on our concern. It is you know, the engine of that resistance that I've been celebrating here. And if we were to advance a position that says, actually, the First Amendment only protects the speech we like, Well, who would be deciding which speech we like? It wouldn't be minority groups. It wouldn't be dissidents. It would be the majority. It would be Donald Trump. It would be the mayor of the town in Mississippi. It would be uh, the the governor of Arkansas, right? It would be the people who are in power and you can be sure that the speech that they would suppress uh, is likely to be Uh, The kind of speech that um, we want heard, not uh, the kind of speech with which we uh, disagree. So I think on on grounds of principle and on grounds of democratic practice, um, uh, it's important to protect speech rights of all, on campus and off.
5: Again, thank you. Um, I appreciated your voice of optimism of the phoenix rising from the ashes of this past election, and, uh, <clears throat> and I hope it comes to pass, and I, and I uh, try to think back to McCarthyism as, a, as an error that we no longer have to deal with, and maybe someday we'll look back at this error the same way. Uh, my question concerns one of the issues you raised, you mentioned in terms of one of the pillars that, that are protecting us is the media. Uh, you briefly mentioned it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the issue there that concerns me, and i 'd like your reaction to is the whole issue of fake news uh, the the attempt by yeah. by Trump in particular and, and right wing uh, uh, extremism in general to create an alternate universe where where we begin to question whether we can call anything a fact anymore. you know you read articles about we live in a fact free society right now and so on, uh, and how when you have a Fox News uh, that will be promoting things that seem contrary to common sense often, and, and a Republican Party, when you look at polls where they believe something with 85% assurance, where the rest of the country is something like 15%, uh, and it just yeah. seems like, and and the similar issue of of the uh, of the interference uh, in social media uh, by Russians and so on, that could affect. You know, you talk about how the hopeful that the next election uh, will bring change, but maybe we won't even have a fair next, yeah. uh, next election. Uh, and so I guess my question is, can you, you know, what is your reaction to all that?
2: So, uh, you guys are insistent on being pessimistic, huh? So, um, uh, no, that, all, all really good questions. And, and social media is a, um, you know, it's, it's really the, you know, it's the democratization of, of media. Um, The fact that anybody, to some degree, can now be a media outlet, um, you know, in in, in many ways it's empowering. You know, you never would have had those airport demonstrations without social media. There's the only way that people spontaneously ran out to airports on that weekend was because of uh, a Twitter storm that got people, uh, you know, uh, 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 out there. Um, so it's it's a powerful tool. It's a powerful tool for good. It's a powerful tool for bad, um, and it frees up speakers to speak without editorial control, um, which creates the possibility of all kinds of uh, of uh, falsehood and the like. And and that's a cost of, uh, of of democracy. And I'm not exactly sure what the best way to respond to it is. I you know I'm I'm I tend to be. Suspicious about uh, suggestions that that we empower uh, a platform, you know, like Facebook or Twitter, to decide what's fake and what's true. Um, but it also seems, uh, uh, um, you know, in the same way that we're, we we don't we don't trust the government to make the right decision about what's uh, false and what's true. Uh, why would we, you know? Trust Mark Zuckerberg Berg to uh, to make that determination, uh, and so you know I tend to think that the best um, the best answer is still to let a thousand flowers bloom and uh, and to, to 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 hope that uh, truth counters falsehood. But um, it's hard to keep one's faith in that uh, in, in the wake of the of the kind of echo chamber. Um, that we're all part of. And it's not just Fox News. You know, there are certain things you can't say on Fox News and must be said on Fox News, and there are certain things that you can't say on MSNBC and you must say on MSNBC. And they're too, you know, all, they are alternate universes, and, and it is deeply troubling that we live in these alternate universes. I think you know the best we can do is to encourage cross-fertilization, to encourage uh, those forms of... Uh, forums in which people speak to each other, in which people are confronted with ideas that they disagree with. Uh, again, one of the reasons I think the First Amendment is so important and tolerating speech we don't like is important is because that's what, uh, you know, creates the exchange which uh, uh, which our system is, is predicated on. So I don't have the answers to, you know, how we adjust or whether we adjust First Amendment principles to um, social media. Uh, I, I agree that it's a challenging, um, it's a very challenging area, um, uh, um, uh, and it's one we have to we have to uh, um, uh, figure out. But I also think it's important to keep in mind that as much of a danger social media creates, it also creates a tremendous opportunity in. giving giving forums for people to to, uh, express themselves in ways that just weren't available when, you know, the New York Times, CBS, ABC, and and NBC uh, essentially controlled the waterfront.
3: Yeah, just to follow up on the last questioner, um, do you see a danger in the whole Russia hysteria where... Apparently, Russia is behind everything bad that ever happens in this country. It was behind Bernie Sanders. It was behind Jill Stein, and is also uh, what I see. Even in the wake of um, um, Parkland, you know, calls for well, there were these conspiracies being spread in social media. So therefore, we we got to crack down on. Do you see a danger of of uh, uh, this what I would call faux resistance? that's all channeled into worrying about Russia and Russia undermining our democracy being used to suppress dissent, you know, in the social – like you said, you know, in the social media, either through the the, uh, companies themselves or pressure on them to, you know, to crack down on certain types of speech, which – I think, will be directed against dissenters. And so I don't, I mean, I think the danger is that this government is doing nothing about Russia.
2: Um, You know, what what we've seen in terms of Russia's interference in our election is outrageous. Uh, And uh, any uh, president who had any, uh, you know, legitimate uh, 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 concern for the future of our democracy would respond uh, seriously. To that, uh, to that attack, and instead we have a president who um, um, is unwilling to take that threat seriously. So I, I think it's a threat we need to take seriously. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, you know that that one of the dangers of social media is that it is that it is accessible to people far beyond our borders who have no legitimate voice in our democracy uh, and um, and are exercising uh, that voice. That problem, I think, we could. Uh, solve. I think you know, dealing with bots, uh, 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 identifying the sources uh, of, of of certain kinds of uh, of, of uh, news information and 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 social media uh, interventions, uh, we could we we could respond to that. I think, but um, but no, I I I think the problem is quite the opposite: that we're not doing enough to respond to that problem, than that we're doing too much.
1: Thank you. I came in despondent, and now maybe I'm a little bit hopeful. uh, To (laughs) give you more hope, we have refreshments in the back. Uh, I hope you'll join us in thanking uh, David Cole.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.